On this show, I talk to fascinating guests from the worlds of art, science, and technology about the future of what they love and do. If you haven't subscribed yet, consider this your official invitation. My guest today is Mason Hargrave, and we are going to be talking about precision medication and how it can be applied to the treatment of depression, though we certainly get sidetracked a little bit with several other interesting topics as well. Mason is a National Science Foundation graduate fellow at the Rockefeller University, where he studies mathematical as well as computational and physical biology. His current research interests lie in the field of effective neuroscience, that is, the study of emotions in the brain. While much of his current research revolves around depression and other mood disorders, his past lives include research on quantum materials, cortical organoids, astrophysics, and the origins of life. Before his appointment at Rockefeller, he was a Regent Scholar at UC Santa Cruz, where he graduated with the highest honors in both physics and computational mathematics. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Mason to this podcast. Thank you so much for for being here, Mason. Of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Um, So, you know, we're going to be talking about precision medicine um, and specifically how it relates to treating depression. But for those not familiar with precision medicine, can you explain what it is? Yeah. So roughly precision medicine is just the idea that not everyone who presents the same should have the same treatment meaning there are a number of underlying reasons why any one person might have a given ailment. And the different underlying reasons lead to different proposed treatments. And so different treatments will work for different people. And it's the act of trying to figure out ahead of time which treatments will work for you and which ones won't without all the trial and error that goes into typical, uh, typical attempts at diagnosing and treating an individual. So precision medicine is just about that closed loop between uh, between differences in people and differences in treatment. Which should be kind of a natural thing, but of course our, our, our system isn't quite set up that way. Um, with precision um, medicine, it has been applied to cancer with quite a bit of success, but it seems to be gaining some momentum when it comes to treating depression as well. So how is it better than existing treatments and why has it been getting attention as of late? Not too much attention, but a little bit. Well, maybe, maybe stepping back from that, I, I should claim, I should make clear off the bat that there aren't really good ways of doing precision medicine for depression that are known yet. So it's not like we're have we're holding the key to success here and no one is adopting it for some sort of corrupt political reasons. There's no conspiracy here. The, re- the reality is, is that we're just not quite there yet, though we are starting to make progress. Um, and it's so so I, I guess I would just want to clarify that from the get go, that it's not like we're we're lacking in support. In fact, I would say mental, the mental health space is one of the most funded, most, uh, you know, most donor support areas 
in all of science right now. As in, there is, there are, there, there's endless buckets of cash for people who can figure these things out. And the fact that not all those buckets of cash are immediately tapped is an indicator of how hard the problem is. And that's really interesting because I wasn't aware that there were buckets of cash being thrown at this. So that's, yep. I mean, that's both good and bad because you're saying, you know, it's a difficult problem to solve despite well, the buckets. It's good and bad because donors with a lot of money already think they know what the solution is. I see. Okay. And a lot of them are Silicon Valley ex-executives or current executives who made their money in their first couple software companies, um, microdose from LSD, and have become completely convinced that psychedelics are the holy grail of, of healing medicines for depression. Is it not? I mean, nothing's the holy grail, right? The whole idea of precision medicine is that different things work for different people. And so what may work for one person, and I'm not opposed to exploring whether these things work for different people, um, may not work for another person. So what I, I think one of the concerns is, and I can't say that I've trotted along and actually talked to enough donors myself to make it uh, make this a informed firsthand account, but... I do believe that there are a lot of people who are donating into spaces who believe they know what the solution is. And that actually causes difficulties because instead of coming in, hey, I have this bucket of cash and I want to solve this problem. It's I have this bucket of cash and I would like to implement this solution. And these, these are very different things. And it's almost always people who come in who want to solve a problem um, and are solution agnostic that do better at solving a given problem than are people who come in with a solution in hand. Well, if I was Joe Rogan, I'd just say make the DMT Foundation and be done with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is a lot of people That's who right. feel this way. <laughs> but, you know, I am not Joe Rogan, so <laughs> we're going to look at some other ways to do things. I mean, one of the issues with depression, it's, it's really difficult to sort of pinpoint the cause, you know, that's not something, the biology of mental illness has not been well understood. Doctors tend to use a trial and error approach with medications. So how would, you know, if successful, how would it even work when it comes to depression? Okay. Okay. So, so there's a few things here. So let's start, let's start with this one. Let's start with this observation that current mental health diagnoses are not scientific. They are sociological. They are fundamentally and foundationally social categories, right? They are categories that you put someone in because of a behavior set. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that when you go to the psychiatrist and you describe kind of your experience, that description itself, you carrying out the description, the words you say is a behavior, right? And that behavior is then bucketed into, or your description of your behavior, because often you're not even just being judged on your behavior, you're being judged on your own description of your behavior, your own subjective description of your behavior, right? That description is then bucketed and categorized just kind of based on social context. It's not biological at all. They're not doing a brain scan to see if you have a deficiency in, you know, in, in firing or signaling or a de, you know, or, or an overabundance of firing and signaling in some brain region. They're not actually actively checking your neurochemistry. They're not actually looking at your genetics. 
they're not actually looking at the proteomics, um, you know, the proteins that are being produced here and there and everywhere um, inside your neural pathways and, and outside. So there's no biological foundation to any of these mental, uh, to almost any, I shouldn't say any, but there's almost no biological foundation um, inherent to the diagnosis. Sure. It, all all biologic context is actually found after the fact, where basically the neuroscientists are handed down the DSM-5 and they're told, hey, we've had these social categories that we've constructed for mostly basically the sake of, um, I would say, kind of the sake of, of, of for, well, there's actually, a, I'm not saying that they're bad, by the way. When I say that they're sociological, I don't mean that they're bad. Like, let me be very clear about that. I don't mean that they're bad. I have a lot of complex f- thoughts and feelings about, <laughs> um, about the DSM. Of course. But, but. But but they're not fundamentally biological, and so then we're asked to find the biological underpinnings of something that was never drawn along biological lines to begin with, right? So what it'll look like is a complete reclassification, redivision of all the mental illnesses that you've come to know and love. <laughs> uh, you know, not so much, but you know, I know what you mean. <laughs> what, what, what I mean is, people like the explanatory power of their social group, right? Sure. So t- try to take someone's diagnosis away and watch what happens. What what happens? So 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 have a conversation. You know, don't don't necessarily do this as an experiment with your own friends. Uh, I, I've done this, but I, I'm an, I'm I'm an odd duck, right? right. Which is which is you say I I don't believe that you have ADHD, and they say, well, I've been diagnosed with ADHD, and I say I don't even believe ADHD is real. Right. Well, yeah. And this is, and you say say this is someone who's used ADHD to have explanatory power in their life for ten to fifteen years. And they've used it as a way to explain a lot of problems that they've had. And they found it useful for explaining those problems. Well, it's useful for, for explaining those problems, but it's also useful for, uh, you know, not putting Re- yourself in the, you know, as, as fully responsible for those problems, which is. Right. So, so, I'm, so I'm diagnosed autistic, right? Mm-hmm. And so I do socially inappropriate things all the time. I say, and so, as if that's the explanation, right? (laughs) You've noticed through our interactions, right? So I'm constantly, I have foot and mouth syndrome. I'm constantly doing things that are inappropriate on accident, right? right? Now, what if my explanation for that was not, I'm autistic, but had to be just like, I'm sorry, I'm just an asshole. I would buy that too. Well, good, because that may actually be a, that may actually be a, you know, just as valid in some sense. But um, my, my point there being that by, by creating a clinical diagnosis, we have a different we have a different relationship with mental health and mental uh, m- mental health and mental illness and the behavior patterns associated than we would if we were to that then we would if we were just to say that oh I'm an asshole oh I'm just like I'm just uh, I'm just a downer oh I'm just you know, whatever it is, insert, insert, you know, kind of maladaptive, inappropriate behavior type, um, wherever. Right. So I, I guess, I guess the, the, the point here being that, that they're those sociological people get really, really attached to their diagnoses and I can understand why. In fact, I am connected to my diagnosis in a large ways. I've used autism to explain a lot of things in my life that now that I'm on the other side of the fence and I don't really believe autism is real, or if it is real, it's probably a hundred to a thousand different things. Wow. Then now it gets confusing, right? I feel like that's a whole can of worms to open up. <laughs> it but is, I, but that is that is the can of worms that precision medicine for depression is. 
I see. Okay. And when you're talking, I mean, I think sometimes these categories are useful for figuring out if it is something that might respond to medication. Like if, if you put a diagnosis of ADHD or if you, you know, certain kinds of depression that might, you know, give certain idea of what medication might be used because in cases with people who have the same symptoms, it has maybe worked. Right. Right. So here's it here. There's like a lot of angles I could take this from. I'll take it from a, I'll take it from a few angles and let's see which one you like. Okay. Why, why don't I rapid fire a few angles? Let's do so, it. Rapid fire angle one. Uh, to any given time series has an infinite number of dynamical systems that can produce that time series. Okay. That's the, my most technical. I'll start with my most technical. Should I have started with my least technical? <laughs> Maybe I should have started with my least technical. I'll start with a story, in fact, and then I'll get back to what I just said. Stories are great. Let's okay, do here's that. The, here's the story. <laughs> So one of my favorite papers, and I can't remember the authors, so, and I can't remember even the name of the paper, so for, forgive me right now because I'm not going to be useful at all. I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards, and maybe you can put the paper in the link in your description. Sure. Um, as a link in your description. But the, 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 the paper is on something that you would never think would be fun. It is a paper on the gastrointestinal tract of lobsters. And who and would have ever thought that I would think that one of the best neuroscience papers of all time is on the gastrointestinal tract of lobsters. I had some sneaking suspicion. That I was into lobsters. I yeah. see a, a Petersonian reference, but no, in fact, this is not a Peterson. This is not a Peterson fact. This is a, this is a fact that I doubt Peterson knows, but um, this is, a, this is a completely independent of Peterson. It has nothing to do with antidepressants and lobsters, even though you would think that would be what I would be talking about. Well, we'll have to share that with him later so he becomes more in the know. <laughs> Of course, of course. And, and so, and so someone, so, so the, the gastrointestinal tract, the gut of the lobster goes through, you know, pulses over time to squeeze poop out of its anus. Right. So that's a very consistent behavior. It's constant neural pulses that lead to this, like, like squeezing, like, a, like, you know, kind of like a pastry tube or something. Uh, <laughs> okay. Now, and now that's very predictable, right? You can like, you, like you can measure that and it's always the same, like it's very, very consistent in its, in its behavior. Yes. Okay? And quite an image as well. Quite Thank an image. That. You're welcome. I thought I would tell a story first. And what these researchers did is that they came up with a number of neural systems that were very similar to the original neurosystem, neural system that re capitulate that same behavior. So they created a bunch of computer simulations for different neural, neuronal networks, like networks of actual simulated neurons that would produce the same outputs as the neurons that control the gastrointestinal tract of the lobster. And what they found is that they could produce feasibly infinite neural systems that could produce that output, right? They could create tons and tons and tons of these systems. In, in physics, we call this degeneracy. It means that there's all, we literally, we call this a gender, it's a technical language. Sure. I know, I know. It's not the, the alt-right thing that you might think it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's not degeneracy theory. It's, it's, it's not about the global. Don't worry, that, that applies, that, that word applies to people across all spectrums. Right, right. No, no, it, 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 it degeneracy just means that there's multiple, there's multiple of the thing, mm -hmm. right? It means that there's many of something that satisfy a given condition. 
So you know, you you so you have certain equations that you know that only have one solution, but then you have other things that have multiple solutions. So right, you, when you took your quadratic equations back in school, back in you know elementary school, and you um, or maybe middle school, I'm not sure when, um, but you do plus or minus right, whatever, right? That's saying that there's two solutions. There's a positive and a negative version of the solution. That's right. degeneracy. That's degeneracy of solutions. And okay. what I'm trying to say is that the degeneracy of solutions for the number of neural systems that can reproduce the lobster gut behavior is almost infinite or potentially infinite. I think it is probably infinite. I don't know that precisely. I don't know if they proved that mathematically. But what is proven is that any time series, meaning just in general, any data that could be produced from any dynamical system, which is a type of mathematical system, has an infinite number of dynamical systems that produce that time series. Meaning there are, there for, and so if we take this back to the depression statement, what I'm saying is that for any given behavior set that you might have, there are an infinite number of reasons why you might be having that behavior set. Right, okay. And, you know, what are sort of, so far, what are the ones that are being looked at the most for evaluating that or figuring out uh, what it is that may cause that behavior? Yeah, so, so maybe, let me think of the right way to get, to get at this angle. So, okay, so you have... So now, now, you, now you have this situation where you say, okay, well, there's infinite, we might as well give up. And you say, no, 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 but there's, even though there's infinite possible things, there's only a finite number of things that actually happen, right? There's all sorts of hidden constraints that we don't know about that are leading to only a finite number of these arising. Well, the question becomes, how many of those are there? And the answer is, it doesn't matter if all you're trying to do is fix it, as you say, with, um, you know, with different treatments. And what treatments are, you know, and, and what treatments are useful. So if you have, so if, if we kind of, ignore some of the things that I'm working on currently, historically really what we've had, um, and up until very recently really what we've had access to is um, global up and down regulators of the entire neural system. So, and I call these sledgehammers. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else in the literature or anyone else in the field calls it this, but I call them sledgehammers. Yeah, probably not a, an academic term, but but I uh, but I like it, so. Yes, <laughs> so, so antidepressants as they exist are sledgehammers, right? They just globally up and down regulate a few different things. Um, not yeah. just not not just antidepressants, but basically all psychiatric drugs we have access to do a few things. They up or down regulate serotonin, dopamine, neuroepinephrine, GABA, um, GABA, uh, GABA, um, and maybe a couple others. But mm -hmm. the, the, the glutamate, glutamine, probably glutamine. Uh, point point being that. It basically, we have a handful of neurochemicals that we can globally, and I mean across your entire nervous system, not just your brain, just globally, up and down regulate. That's all we can do. We can raise the temperature or decrease the temperature effectively in terms of like kinetics on, on, on basically five different types. And these are types that are everywhere. They're not like even circuit specific. They're not like region specific. These dopamine, serotonin, these things are found everywhere in the entire neural system, right? right. So you're, that's, what I mean, that's what I really mean when I say global. It's like, it's a sledgehammer. It just hits everything. And so if, if no matter what you diagnose with, all you have is um, 10 options, up or down regulate five different neurochemicals, that are global neurochemicals. And there's, by the way, there's tons more than that that we actually yeah. have. And you don't even know if those are the right ones. Like those aren't even might... necessarily the ones causing the problem. Exactly. Right. There's no guarantee that, the, that, that that's actually the problem. Yeah. So, so my, my point being is that if, if all you have, what I'm getting at is if all you have is five, basically 10 treatments, 
that all you need is basically 10 categories. Mm -hmm. Would any new category or rather would any new treatments be possible if there was a greater understanding of what is actually going on in the mind or in the body? Absolutely. And one of these things is transcranial magnetic stimulation. This is something that I'm like mo spending most of my time thinking about these days, um, which is which is a little electromagnet that you can put, uh, or not a little, it's a huge electromagnet actually. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's an electromagnet that you can precisely position outside the skull, so it's non-invasive. And then you can you know, quickly alternate the current, which leads to an alternating electric field, induces an alternating magnetic field, which itself then introduces another, uh, introduces an electric field inside your brain that causes, um, that causes depolarization of your axons in a given region. And then you can pulse that at a certain rate in order to get um, kind of stimulation pulses at, you know, whatever rate seems, seems interesting. And Not you can to do be this not to be mistaken for electroshock therapy, right? Not to be mistaken for electroshock therapy, even though electroshock therapy has a bad rap. It's actually like, can be super helpful to people who have not responded to other treatments. Yeah, I have heard some really great stories about that. <laughs> I, I, I actually, we demonize the hell, like, that's another thing. At a social level, we demonize the hell out of taking your meds and getting electroshock therapy. If one yeah. flew over the cuckoo's nest may be the worst thing that ever happened to mental health care. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> because it, because you know afterwards we disbanded the entire mental health system and that led to our homeless crisis. Um but that's a whole other it's a whole other can of worms. Sure. Um, well going back to the to the what what the technology that you were talking about. Um so that's a really that sounds very interesting and promising and 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 you know cuz one of the issues also with the, all these medications they're they're highly addictive and and potentially have the cap capacity to change how the brain operates and if you even withdraw it like first of all the withdrawal symptoms could be quite awful and second of all um, you know it might have even permanently rewired some people's brains so though of course most of the things in that class are um Oh yes, the opioid receptors. That's another. That's another group that you can mess with, uh, and most of those are in the category of you know messing with the opioid system. So those are those are. Tip I mean, I I'm not really at the I'm not really a pharmacologist, um, or at least I if I am, I'm a very very amateur one. Sure. So I don't I can't say that I know for sure the addiction withdrawal effects of a lot of these antidepressants. But my impression is that they're like not actually that severe compared to, um, and they're not like causing mass deaths in the United States, for instance, right? Like, right. like, like suicide kills way more people than withdrawals from antidepressants, like by orders and orders of magnitude. Um, like among young people, like the two main things that can kill you or the three main things that can kill you are opioid overdoses, um, car crashes and suicide. Mm -hmm. Those are basically the only things that kill you when you're young. Yeah. But if you can find a better mousetrap, that's always more desirable than, you know, uh, continuing with the old one that's going to damage your tail. I, I mean, this right. is my metaphor. <laughs> uh, though, though, I, though, I, though I guess I hesitate to say that these things are damaging, especially just because the <laughs> amount that we stigmatize medication. I'm not saying that TMS is going to replace medication. Realize that's not what I'm saying. But what it's I'm another option. It's going to necessitate the addition of the, the, the addition of more, because um, once now, now let's say that you can stimulate 10 more regions on the brain and you can do that for um, two different, you know, or, you know, 10 different frequencies each, right? So that now adds a hundred new categories 
mm-hmm. of, uh, so let's say you have 10 regions and 10 different speeds of oscillation that you can do. So that's, that's now 100 new categories. Right, so you can deal with a lot more potential issue causes, root right. causes, yeah. Right, and so and so and so you, you, you now you can start asking questions like, oh, is it is it is it you know is it your temporal lobe like is it is it is it back here you know where where is and you know localizing is not every things in the brain are not very local but by stimulating a local region you're also you're also stimulating and down down regulating or up regulating various other regions which that region is connected to and so and there's a lot of promise here um so for instance some of the work that came out of the lab that i work in and let me point out that i was not involved in this work this is not my work it's some work that i'm building on but it's not work that i did um, which is they were able to find, they were able to cluster fMRI data, fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. It's an image, it's a brain scan, basically. Um, and they were able to take this data from patients, and then they were able to use that data and be able to create clusters, which they called biotypes. And each of these clusters had a different response to transcranial magnetic stimulation, meaning that for, so overall, maybe it's something like 40% effective, but when you classify it, you actually find that there's a subtype of these individuals for which it's like, 85 to 90% effective and another subgroup for where it's like 15 to 10% effective. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you get the the point being is that there's a subgroup, which actually it almost always works for. And there's a subgroup that it almost never works for. And the suggestion, the implication there is that those are actually, even though they both have the same diagnosis, what's the diagnosis? It's treatment resistant depression. But even given the same diagnosis, you had two different groups that responded very, very differently to the same treatment. Right. That's interesting. So, you know, what does research in that space currently look like? Are there any studies that you're aware of, studies you were maybe involved with, any roadblocks that, you know, they're facing? Well, right now, that's, that's kind of the, uh, on my end, that's kind of the, we'll have to wait and see, because I'm in the trenches on that right now, as in there's not been much beyond what, at least in the lab that I'm working in, there's not been much beyond that, which I am fully at liberty to talk about. <laughs> um, I am not supposed to be giving, you know, and, I, and I'm not really doing anything. Um, it, well, I'm, I'm doing things in that space, but there are a lot of legislative hurdles on the way to doing that because patient data is sensitive. Mm-hmm. And we in America are very interesting about our patient data, right? We, 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 I don't know, I think it's a uniquely American thing, actually, um, which is that we really, really care about privacy, like a whole lot, like a whole, whole lot we care about privacy. And that's, I think, more than a lot of other countries. There are a lot of other countries where patient data isn't treated nearly as sacrosanct as it is in the United States. And what I think is an un, like a an unfortunate side effect of that is that there are tons of training and like various different annoying paperwork things you have to do just to get access to even anonymized data and to get new data analysts on and off of that. And so that's been a, that's like a lot of this is my time right now is like thinking about what I will do once the data hits and (laughs) me not being able to touch the data because it's A, being collected and B, as it's being collected, there's a bunch of paperwork on the back end that has to be done before I, as the person not collecting it, as a third party has to like wait for that data to get to me. And so, and that's waste years, right? Like it quite literally wastes a year or so of of a PhD and this happens all the time. 
Right. So, you know, if in an ideal world as a researcher, you know, in order to make progress quicker, uh, what would be the ideal circumstance? Um, the ideal circumstance would be that once data is effectively anonymized, as in your name and your first and last name has been taken out of the equation, and we replace it with a unique patient identifier, then you would not be able to, there would not be nearly as many predictions on that data. <laughs> Are people that be volunteering that data? Is that... Yes, and sometimes what they do is they volunteer for medical research, right? And then, but then they they'll check a box or something that they'll say, or that the, you know they won't necessarily check a box, but you know they may not give permission for it to be used for commercial purposes. And in their head, that's oh well, that's that that's good because I don't want anyone making money off of my data. Hmm. But actually, what that does is it makes it even harder to take something that works in the clinic and turn it off into a spinoff that's actually going to be useful to helping a bunch of people. Yeah, well, ultimately, if you're doing research and you're spending a lot of time and resources and talent and money into it, um, there does need to be some sort of way to monetize it, right? Yep. You, eventually, you eventually want to get to a point where you can have a software that does diagnosis off of fMRI data and patient interviews, like what I'm, like what I'm like, uh, ostensibly going to be working on, right. right? And you'd like to be able to recoup that cost. But you can't do that in the United States because because the high because you know it's it's really really difficult to get patient data and patient data has all these laws sitting around it. Maybe you can do it, but it requires a team of lawyers, mm -hmm. a team of lawyers that makes startup costs way higher, makes things way slower, and because venture capital funds look at five year five year returns, not twenty year returns. A year or two stuck in legal, you know, a year or two effectively stuck in legal is a year or two wasted, which takes away from your five years. So now you have to compress your research under the three years. So you try to do your research in the clinic, but then when you do your research in the clinic, it's on data that you can't touch because it's not approved for commercial purposes. Right, okay, that's interesting. So there's kind of a catch-22 here. And the solution to that catch-22 isn't entirely clear. The answer may be something like, do your pre-training in India. <laughs> Right. And, you know, with DNA tests, those are, you know, be, have become pretty easy to do and expensive and talk about privacy laws. You know, obviously, there's a lot of issues around that when it comes right. to these. Uh, <laughs> that's probably part of why the cost isn't very high. Um, but it seems like that allows for a lot of opportunities uh, for uh, precision medication specifically. You know, do you think that could apply to a lot of other areas outside of depression? I, I do. I think I think genomics is an, a good space for for working on precision medicine. Of course, it's probably the most popular space to be working in precision medicine. Due to the how cheap sequencing has gotten, it's a very common way to look for. Um, I mean, I, I think this is a very common approach. I I am dubious as to the short to near the short and near term prospects of these things simply because um there's a lot of very complex interactions between genes that are not very well worked out and but i think it's possible that it'll work i think you probably run into the same patient data things i don't know i'm not very qualified to speak in that space right. um, what, what i do know is that i i mean 
I, maybe I should be more qualified because I used to work at the Genomics Institute where they, where they sequenced the first human genome. Um, but I, I, once again, I was at a talk at the Human Genome Institute, or, or the, uh, at the Genomics Institute, um, and there was a guy talking about the fact that there are difficult, that it's not obvious how we're going to solve the data problem, the data privacy problem in the context of genetics. And I actually have a suggestion. I, I, have, I have kind of a, maybe a radical proposal, and I've never heard anyone propose this before. So, and I've never said it in public. So this will, we'll, we'll get this on the record recorded here. It will be. I love first. this exclusive. Yeah, this is an This is a this is a near-term exclusive hot take, um, which came which came out of a um, morning of a, a bacon, egg, and cheeses with my with my buddy, uh, you know, walking around the campus and drinking a cup of of halal cart coffee, um, and that is that is that maybe what you do is you give patients, you say you say, okay, in exchange for your data to be used for commercial purposes, you get a share of whatever company that you provided your data to. Wow. Interesting idea. And it doesn't have, it's not a big share because you can't, if you're getting big data sets, you can't give a big share, but you say, Hey, here's a stock. And when we IPO, that stock will be yours. And then you'll be able to sell that stock if we do well. That's really interesting because then the person is invested in it themselves and in the success of it. That's a really that's a really interesting approach. And they have ownership. They feel like, hey, look, I, I'm giving my data to a company that if it does well, I get paid. I've all, always liked that that uh, approach actually because, well, completely unrelated and completely unrelated industry. But I always thought if I ever owned a restaurant, uh, the, the the way that I wanted to set that up is actually I wouldn't have tipping allowed, but I'd pay, you know, a decent wage. And then on top of it, people have been around longer would get, um, you know, depending on how long they've been around, they would get shares in the, in the company. And so they would be, you know, also part owners, which would make me more invested in the success and would feel like they're really part of it because they would be. And I thought that would be a better model than, you know, just a typical employee relationship. And in fact, a lot of startups do this with their employees, right? This is like already, right? Like this is, or with, with exactly as you're saying with their employees, right? Like this is, this is how, this is how almost all Silicon Valley startups work. Right. right. Is that you get shares when you're involved. And so I, I guess the idea is just expanding that relationship to the people who provide you data um, may be a way around this problem. However, I don't know how this works legally. I'm not a lawyer. So uh, it's, this is my harebrained scheme for getting around a lot of these laws and stopping people and, and making people double think or double, you know, think a second time when they say, I don't want this to be used for commercial purposes. Because I think what they're saying is I don't want someone else to benefit off of this without me benefiting off of this. Where if you said it, it feel like people would think it was a more fair trade if they got a share of the company that they were giving the data to. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot to it. I'm, I'm not a lawyer either, and I don't even play one on TV or not even here. But, <laughs> but sometimes in my in my dreams I play one. So maybe and, that and, it, and it's an interesting cryptography problem, by the way, oh, to figure so? out how you can how it is that you can de anonymize the data while still containing enough information to provide someone a share of a company after you use their data. 
Uh, well, all the cryptocurrency people are going to love that. <laughs> it's 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 a crypto question. I don't actually think it's going to have anything to do with cryptocurrencies. I think it's just a cryptography question. Right. Uh, I, I, I think cryptocurrencies are just mostly a solution looking for a problem. Um, they're, the, <laughs> they're the exact type of thing I don't like to get involved with, which is solutions looking for problems, not problem, people looking to solve problems. Well, I've, I've recently had some conversations with that community. So I'm, I'm learning a lot, but uh, I, I, I share probably some of the skepticisms. I, I doubt anything that's talked about in crypto circles could be categorized as learning. Um, mostly it should be categorized as indoctrination. There, there, it does feel a little bit like that, I'll, I'll be honest. Well, well, here's the difference, right? I've never heard anyone explain a crypto thing clear enough that I understood it. And I know that the problem is not that I am dumb. No, but is it that? <laughs> <laughs> but is it that it's quite complicated, or are the people? No, because because no, that, that's it. the thing. Because I I work with I work with like some of I've worked with some of the top math mathematical minds of this generation, and they've been able to explain things that are almost certainly more complicated to me in ways that made more sense. So it feels like maybe they don't understand it because usually I think that's that's the problem, right? Like if you can't yep. understand something clearly and simply, it, it usually means that you're the one not having that understanding. I had a much clearer explanation to me about the connection between Lie algebras and Lie groups <laughs> and how they relate to differential uh, differential manifolds today Um than I have ever heard an explanation about almost anything in crypto. And, and I have if, looked. Right. And even if you could explain it to some extent where like maybe you and I understand it, I mean, you have to be able to translate it to so many people for it to really fully take hold that it just, it does become something kind of uh, verging on impossible. But I guess we'll see. I could I could be proven wrong, right? I like Me too. I, I'm I'm saying this, but I have ten percent of my net worth in in, in Bitcoin. So. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't uh, know. Uh, only because uh, only because I figure you know if you can't beat them, join them, and it's a ten percent hedge. I'm I'm basically bet gambling on the ten percent chance that I'm not only I'm not only gambling that I'm wrong. I'm gambling that. I'm still right, but everyone else will fall off the cliff, will, will run towards the cliff with reckless right. abandon. Right. Well, my, my dad always says, put, you know, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? And so now you're putting 10% of your eggs in that basket in case uh, people go crazy. I mean, <laughs> NFTs, though, I feel like I, I'm a lot more uh, convinced that that's uh, <laughs> bursting pretty soon. Yeah, you think so? Oh, okay. Yes, I do. But I don't I, I don't know. I, I, I mean... It, I can know, think of a few reasons to have them around, but I, they don't seem like they're... I don't think they're a good investment. I think if you're an artist and you can monetize it, go right ahead. That's awesome. I would do it yeah. myself. But uh, but in terms of uh, an actual investment, I think unless we live in a world where the virtual world is such an exact, um, as valued of an extension as our uh, physical world, I don't see that working. But if it is, and maybe, you know, in the far, far future it will be, or perhaps there's another way to use that technology and apply it quite differently. That is what is currently kind of being publicized. Yeah, I often end up, I mean, I often end up coming with ideas for, hmm, maybe, maybe that's, maybe this could be used there. 
but it's it's it, almost always I can also come up with an easier way to do it using something else. As in anything that I've ever thought that I could solve using crypto, I've thought of a better way to solve in a different different. You know, I've thought of a better way to solve using not crypto. Right. Exactly. And yeah, I just don't. I just don't. Well, you know, well, the three million dollar investment in an NFT, I just don't think is a wise one. Who invested three million? Oh, there's been a few sales of uh, pieces of art that were like NFTs, and there's even I think eight million dollars. So oh it's, wow! It's gone high, and it's just I, unless you're just like, hey, let let's give some money to artists, which is fine. That's great. But if if that's not your goal and you actually think you're going to make money on it, you know, and you might if you're just speculating right now. But I just is the idea that they're un- completely uncopyable. They are completely copyable. I mean, that's just literally the, the only thing about it is like, OK, so if you have a, a, a play card, right, and you, you got this or, or like a, a piece of art in, in the physical space, right, you've got this one and you have ownership, you have the original, mm-hmm. but in the digital space, you also theoretically have the original. But then, you know, if I went save as and copied it, I would have that same image on my computer. Yeah, I think people are taking the analogy of originals and copies of art too far, right? Because, yeah. okay, so so I am soon to be the proud owner of, as soon as my Biden check cashes, um, <laughs> I am soon to be the proud owner of a copy of Christ's Entry into Brussels, 1889, um, which is from James Enzor. And it's one of my favorite favorite paintings uh, ever since I was a teenager and I saw it at the Getty Museum. Um, and it's uh, a print? Or? And I'm getting a print, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you ask, well, what's the difference, Mason, between your print and the original? And the answer to that is not sentimental. The answer to that is, well, the paint strokes on the original are three-dimensional, as in you can see the depth due to the paint strokes, right? You can see mm-hmm. it, the, the original is worth more because it actually looks better. Unless you copy it, but then the paint strokes won't be paint strokes, strokes by the same artist. And they, and won't, that- but they won't even be the same paint strokes. And no. if that pa- painter was truly a master then it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same. Yeah, and it would be very hard to replicate. But then if you're talking about, here's where it kind of gets a little bit more confusing, is that, okay, so you take a photograph and, you know, artists, uh, photographers will say, sell fine art prints. And so they'll make five copies, 250 copies, whatnot. And um, I'm I'm actually kind of kicking myself for not buying one by Leonard Cohen when I had the chance for, like, I think it was $5,000 at the time, and now it's worth a whole lot more. Oh, boy. But um, but the thing is, uh, so that becomes literally a copy. Uh, The only difference is, you know, there is a limited number of them. And, you know, you've got one of, you know, 250 or one out of 50. So that's a little bit more similar, I suppose, because there's no brush strokes. It's not really that different from a print. But usually with those kinds of pieces, you're not really able to buy one that size and, you know, and of that quality. Right, because they don't release the high-res version exactly. to the public. Yes. But if you release the high res digital copy 
then I promise you it gets copied. Exactly. And it's also signed by the original artist. So, you know, which people might value that signature as well. Right, right, right. But if there's no functional difference, right? I don't, if you told me, if you told me, if you said, Catherine, if you said Mason, Mason, I have the original, I have the original uh, MP3 (laughs) (laughs) of Crank That by Soldier Boy. Okay. I would say, I don't care, dude. I can stream that on my Spotify. (laughs) Exactly. I I genuinely don't care, right? That's right. (laughs) And so I feel like NFTs are kind of that. Exactly. The only difference would be if when I sold you that MP3, if it was an MP3 that only you then had, and maybe you can, or, or an image that only you had, and then you can put in your virtual museum and people can come to your virtual museum or your virtual living room or whatnot. And then only there can they see that piece of art. Then I think then it has value of some sort. Right. And and, without that, and it's, yeah, so so like so so people could buy NFTs and and not give out the high res versions, and then they can have exclusive things, and they can make prints of whatever it is that they they want, and they can decide how much they want to copy or not. Mm-hmm. So so maybe maybe in that way it'll it'll be it'll be valuable, well, but it's only valuable if they haven't already posted the high res picture somewhere. Exactly. So that's where we're really at. So that's why I said if they figure out how to use that technology in a different way, then it has potentially some merit. But not what we're seeing right now. I think what we're seeing right now is absolutely ridiculous. And I feel bad for people actually <laughs> investing in, which I think a lot of people will not like me for saying, but I've been pretty vocal. And honestly, the first time I've heard of this was about a year and a half ago. Somebody was so excited about it. This is the future, 100%. I mean, he was right because it's become very popular right now. But I still think I thought it was a terrible idea then, and I still feel that way. But it could well, be wrong. We could I've all met, be wrong. I, I've met people at these crypto marketing firms. There's one here in New York. And let's just say the, mar- the crypto marketing people are the people most convinced that they know what's going on and clearly the least understanding of what's actually going on. <laughs> like, well, I've, never heard, I've, never, I've never heard a crypto marketing person say something that like actually sounded like a realistic explanation of... The, the the thing um they have the craziest explanations and the most are the most enthused but like they're very never understand. and today on clubhouse lex was on with them it was something about the toxic culture of of you know cryptocurrency and uh i was kind of an, I, I was only there for a little bit but it was interesting i mean i when i talked to those guys they were really f- I came in because they were talking about journalism basically disappearing and, and, and basically, and, and how journalists cover cryptocurrency and the New York time ban on owning cryptocurrency. If you're going to write about it, which I, I, I kind of in agreement with the cryptocurrency community on that. Like, I think you should be able to own it at least, but you need to disclose. How's that even enforceable? Well, I don't know if somebody <laughs> tried, not, yeah, yeah, that doesn't even true. sound enforceable. That's true. How would, yeah. One of my, my favorite Oscar Wilde story um, is one where uh, the short version is that there's a statue that uh, consistently has bird poop on it. So the mayor makes it illegal for there to be, for birds to poop on the statue. <laughs> and so the statue is clean from then on. Mm. <laughs> of course, the tongue-in-cheek joke being that this is this is completely absurd. No, I, as someone I, with a heavy pigeon problem, I know 
that's not possible. Uh, and, and he was making this joke because he was a gay man in a time where it was illegal to be gay. <laughs> right. And he thought this was very funny. Um, and and produced this. And I mean, I mean, it's tragic and funny. You know, I think I think I, th- I believe he was jailed for it um, at one point in time. Um, but uh, you know, and and of course, this leads to Oscar Wilde producing these like hilarious plays where he's just roasting heterosexual relationships to no end. Right. Well, I guess uh, we should get back to our very serious topic. Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, where was I? <laughs> <laughs> Cryptocurrency. We, we, we t- once, we, once you go into that rabbit hole, you're just like... <laughs> you're kind of stuck, yeah. What other areas do you think precision medicine can apply to? Beyond? I suspect precision medicine will be the hot topic of the 21st century in terms of medicine. Mm -hmm. I think almost everything that will occur in medicine will be under the banner of precision medicine over the next 100 years. When it comes to precision medicine, like is there some kind of, um, what are kind of the measurements that are key to get in order to be able to evaluate and apply individually? Yeah. So these things are called biometrics and the answer is we don't know yet for, um, for, I'll tell you that for depression, what we're currently looking at, um, are is fMRI functional magnetic resonance imaging. We're looking at patient interviews. We're looking at, and from that we're talking face videos. Talk about something that you can't, you can't anonymize. That's going to be, that's going to be real fun to have a conversation (laughs) about with the, with the lead. What are the face videos for? Facial expressions. Okay, Humans so emote an incredible amount in our faces. I mean, think think about what are what are people what are, name, name off some people some of people's chief complaints about masks. <laughs> right, you can't see people's emotions, ah, expressions. Yep, and I've I've been joking. Now everyone understands what it's like to be autistic. <laughs> At least part of it, where the facial expressions don't mean anything to you. Really? Well, I mean. Not without training. Wow. And that's not for everyone with autism, right? Because autism is a social category. It's not a real thing. But, <laughs> but there are people who, uh, I, you know, who cannot interpret facial expressions well at all. Like they don't, like it doesn't mean anything to them. That's interesting. And there are also people who don't really have um, facial expressions that accurately represent what they're feeling. Accurately according to your mental model. <laughs> well, I think even according to their mental model, because they realize that it's inaccurate. Uh, I mean, they would look at it and they would say, oh, that's not what I'm trying to show on my face. Oh, it's like that resting bitch face, right? Ah, <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, got, got on. I see, what you're, I see what you're referencing now. Yeah. As in, I don't want to be interpreted this way. Yeah, this, this is about um, in, internalized and an inter, externalized, rep, like, like, like expression and... In, what would be like expression? Is there impression? Oh, maybe that's, that's interesting. I wonder if that's, I wonder if you could use that as a symmetric thing, right? Like what you're expressing is what you're trying to impress. Yeah. I mean, your, your impress, your impression sometimes mismatches your expression or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know what people used to tell me all the time, you know, a penny, you know, a penny for thought, and I would ask for a dollar minimum. Um, (laughs) But they thought I was like thinking very heavily because I have that expression on my face. And uh, some of the time I really wasn't thinking about anything. So Ah, That's funny. 
but other times, like when I do interviews, for example, especially things that are um, where the subject is on camera and I'm not, I will use my facial expressions to communicate things to them because I can't use my voice. I can't really interrupt because my voice isn't going to be in the final cut. So I end up using a lot of my face to more like act to give them a sense of if emotions and how they're affecting me um, so that they right. have some sort of feedback and feel more comfortable. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And, and so, and so people losing that uh, ability has been, has been challenging, but the thing is, is that what, what that means is that there's information there, right? What? There's information in face expressions. Oh yeah. We're able absolutely. to communicate using them. And of course the mathematical theory of communication was the name of the paper that, uh, the paper that created information theory, right? Cloud Shannon, the, the beginning of information theory as a technical phrase in mathematical physics is Cloud Shannon's a mathematical theory of communication. Right. Okay. And because, what, go ahead. Yeah. Because communication and information are inexorably tied. This, like, like it's, information is the engineering problem of communication, as would be said by Cloud Shannon or his, or his contemporaries. Yeah. Well, also another another thing that may be completely off topic, but uh, something that came up yesterday in a conversation is that uh, in terms of information and how our brain processes them, because we get so much more information than we're really aware of uh, over time, things like having a gut instinct. This is why you should probably trust your gut instinct is because your brain is actually potentially processing information that you're not even fully aware is there. Or, or how that works in your yeah, brain. Not, not, not all information hits the corticothalamic system and turns into things that you're aware of. Exactly. And which I think is kind of fascinating because it, you know, it, it explains things that we call intuition or the sixth sense or, you know, those kinds of things. Well, well there's a, there's a famous set of experiments where, um, where a, where the decision to press a button consciously, you, when you, when you consciously think of making the, the decision, you, press a button, but that it was that from looking at brain scans, you could, or I can't remember what technology that you used, but I can't remember if this is in humans or in mice. <laughs> um, this is how jumbled everything is up here. Um, but but the, you could predict which button would be pressed far before the actual pressing happened. I think this was in humans. Mm -hmm. Meaning yeah. that the decision was made before it was consciously made, but then you made a conscious decision. <laughs> That's interesting. So that just kind of proves that whole theory. What and, I, and I think this happens all the time, right? Uh, in fact, a lot of the time, how smart someone is is based roughly in measure with how well they are at post hoc rationalizing their decisions. <laughs> That's interesting because, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times I arrive at things incredibly quickly without quite realizing how I got there. And then when I'm talking to people, I then have to sort of walk them through that. Otherwise it makes no sense to them. But you're not even walking them through the true way that you made that Probably decision. not. Probably you're walking not. them through a rationalization of your decision, That's which right. is used in order to convince them that your decision is a reasonable one. That's right. And that's, and that's where people get really confused sometimes because especially if I don't do that and I just arrive at the conclusions and it, may, it seems to make no sense, right? Right. And I mean, I mean, but this, this, this happens all the time, right? It's, it's, this is like, you know, this, I think this is, this comes up in attraction a lot, which is, which is that, you know, you probably know within seven seconds whether or not you're attracted to someone. Mm -hmm. You don't have to really, it's not like, you don't have to really think about it that hard. 
Yeah, and then that's people will spend then people will spend years <laughs> in a relationship that doesn't even make sense. Convincing themselves this, that, or the other, um, rationalizing their attraction in this, that, or the other way, um, even if it like actually at a rational level it never made sense. You were just attracted to them. Which I don't really understand why they, because sometimes they're not attracted to a person, and so that. And sometimes you've rationalized being around them for a different reason. Maybe there's financial gain to be had. Maybe there's social gain to be had. Maybe that makes your mother happy. Maybe there's, you know, maybe she's, maybe, you know, maybe they're the type of person who uh, you want to like and that you have a narrative about yourself that you'd like to actually complete. There's a whole lot of reasons you could rationalize in the background, right? And, sure. and so, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, no, and I guess that happens with, with in every sort of category of human relationship when you're making that judgment so quickly. Because I, I know that I make those judgments extremely quickly. Um, and And I guess it makes sense that it would just be you know, something about your brain that has observed, you know, I've met a lot of people over long periods of time. I'm very, I, I notice very small details. So perhaps subconsciously there's a calculation that goes on there and it's sort of instantaneous or at least seven seconds long. <laughs> right, right. And there are these, and well, and so, and, and that's the thing is that you have different sort of you have different systems that are good for doing different things that are, and, and they work at different characteristic timescales, right? And, and, and you can see that this is, so like one of my favorite little, little factoids that's really fun is that a, that a chimpanzee would wreck you and me, it would wreck both, <laughs> both of us, us. Yes, on, on, on the working memory portion of an IQ test. Really? Absolutely destroy us. Wow. It wouldn't even be close. It would definitely wreck me because my memory is, is just horrible. Oh yeah, but. my working memory is like the worst part of my of of my of my uh, of, of my full score IQ test, right? Oh but, wow. But but the, the the thing is is that and that that's the thing about the full score IQ test, right? Is it's actually a bunch of different things. It's like it's like a, it's like 10, 15 different measurements of things that like some of which and we all call them intelligence, but some of them like a chimpanzee would beat the hell out of us on. Right, because they have very little bearing on for the real life. I've, well, they have some bearing. They just, just not. It's just not unclear how much bearing it has, or maybe it is clear, and the answer is like, like limited. Yeah, and I, and I think also when you take these AQ tests, there's uh, like if you learn how to if you if you've encountered the problems on the AQ tests before, there's often a pattern to solving them or a strategy. So if you've ever done one before, you're way more likely to score higher the next time you do it. Yeah, there's some, there's, well, there's some, there's something to be said about that, though in perceptual learning, it's really interesting that it's like not generalizable at all. So like all these like luminosity brain training games are complete scams. <laughs> as oh, in, I, as in you, you, you do, you train on one th task and you actually only get better at that task. You don't get better at any tasks that are even somewhat related. Really? Like it's so to like the point the that if you train, it, yeah, it's like, even if you train, it's called perceptual learning. And even if, so for instance, if you train on like like you, here are three dashed lines, which one's offset top or bottom, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like, like, is it, uh, is it a little bit too high or a little bit too low? And you can answer that. And then you switch the, the, the one that goes left, right. And you can like, there's no, no improvement on your left, right from training up down. Oh, that's interesting. Huh. None at all. It's interesting. Cause a lot of the claims being made are. <laughs> is that counted. it generalizes, but it doesn't. 
Yeah, yeah. And this sure. makes sense because in the machine learning literature, a lot of the difficulty is that you train a, you train a network to be good at this thing. Then you try to see if it's good at this other thing. And that's called generalizability. And like, like machine learning is notoriously fickle at generalization. Mm-hmm. Notoriously. Really, really, really bad at generalizing. Huh. Okay. That's why you have to have training data sets. And then uh, that's why you have to have training data sets and then, um, and, and then test data sets. Right, because and your test data set often has to be outside of the scope. You know, your final test is data that's outside of the scope of the data you collected to see can I apply this machine learning algorithm outside of the of only the data set we collected for training the, the algorithm. Right? Does it even work when we take it quote unquote out into the wild? And the crazy thing about humans is that we actually generalize. The fact that we have general intelligence is actually like the crazy part. That is that is kind of crazy, and I guess special about about us in a way. It, Yes and no. Right? <laughs> You're not going to let me win that one, huh? We have an octopus in the tank over there, right? Oh no. <laughs> we're trying to figure out, what, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, how generalizable, how generalizable can that guy be? I hear they're very smart octopus. I don't know. We're gonna we're gonna find out. <laughs> Please don't cut it. <laughs> no, what? No, <laughs> we're not cutting it. No heavens. No, we're 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 experimenting on it. Thank. Thank God, I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping the experiments are animal friendly, but. Oh, I'll... of course. Yeah. No, we have, we have a large nursing staff. Everything's, everything's super above board. We have to get everything approved by an ethics board, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So, you know, going back to some of the things that you look for uh, outside of just uh, facial expressions with precision medication, what are some of the other things that you've been, you know, collecting d- those data sets on? So fMRI, facial expressions, voice modulations, um, during patient interviews. So that we look at all sorts of things, syntactic closeness. So for instance, one thing that, um, one thing that was surprising in um, work from one of my now collaborators, um, awesome that I have this as a guy as a collaborator. Now I'm very happy, um, uh, at IBM, um, is that they were able to show they were able to predict psychotic breaks, um, with people who have a history of psychosis, uh, by seeing how close some of their were their words and their patient interviews were to the word introspection. Hmm. So <laughs> what you, does that mean? If you didn't use words that were similar to the word introspection, as in similar um, meaning-wise, not not similar like 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 in the in the space of meaning, okay. which is like you can you you can draw a synonym synonym graphs so you can take a word and you can like go through like slant synonyms like things that are almost mean the same thing until you get to a different word. Sure. And uh-huh. so that's how you figure out how close something is, is how, how, what's the shortest path. Have you ever played that game on Wikipedia where you try to get from one page to the other and the least number of clicks? I, I have not played that game, but perhaps now I will instead well, of my virtual know, handset. <laughs> pick, click, okay, so the game is like click a random, random Wikipedia page or open two random Wikipedia pages and then try to get to the one, one page from the other page. Okay. Makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I understand. That, I'm going to be th- playing this game later. That's the game. It's a very fun game. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it, and so it's, how do you do that with the least number of clicks? Well, the question is, if you were on an, in thesaurus.com and you were to click synonyms, what's the shortest distance between, between one word and another word? That's the, that's the distance. Oh, that's, so that's interesting. Okay. If people weren't using words that were close enough to introspection, then they were much more likely to have a psychotic break. Wow. I think I don't, I'm not very close to a psychotic break. 
Good. Yeah. If you, yeah. well, we, we've used, you know, all you have to do is use the word introspection in this sentence once. If you say it, you'll be, you'll be cured. That's the takeaway, right? Oh, okay. Um, introspection, introspection, introspection. Did Beetlejuice Great. show up? Yeah. Now, now, <laughs> now you're introspective Beetlejuice. <laughs> an introspection a day keeps the psychiatrist away. <laughs> um, so, so, so yeah, that's the, when it comes to voice, you mentioned voice modulation. What, what yep. was the yep. uh, different there? power band frequencies? So, like different power bands, um, or like ampli- power frequency amplitudes. Uh, sorry, let me different amplitudes in various power bands. So, basically, you, you know, you have a different amount of energy being put into high frequency, low frequency noises, or whatnot. And you can, you know, take that with a Fourier Fourier transform. You can get that out of the out of the data, and you can figure out, you know, kind of, oh, is this a lot, a lot of high frequency, a lot of low frequency? And you can test that against baseline, like when they are or aren't. Um, you know, this has been done for people who are and aren't on the medication, uh, their L-DOPA for uh, Parkinson's, um, and you're able to figure out just through voice um, power bands what uh, what if they are or aren't on the medication. So there's a lot of information in voice. There's a lot of information in face. There's a lot of information in brain scan, and you can do that through fMRI or EEG. And the question is, when we combine all this information, um, will we be able to predict what types of treatments, be them medication or uh, medication or uh, transcranial magnetic simulation or you know, things like things like ketamine, um, which are induced. Uh, it, it, I guess that is also a medication, but it's not a medication you do at home. It's a medication yeah, yeah. clinic. Um, and and well, some people do it at home, but <laughs> they're doing it wrong. Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily. I mean, they're being no, rebels. All right. Uh, <laughs> we'll move yeah, forward. Yes, uh, as an official, yes, they are doing it wrong. They're doing it illegally. Shame, right. shame, shame, shame. Officially, um, we're, we don't condone. Yeah, do not condone. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, that's that's basically the game. The game is taking a number of data sorts. I don't know what data sources. Maybe genes will be useful. We're not collecting that data. But um, you know, there's a number of data sets that might be useful to be making these predictions, and we'll have to figure out what is and isn't useful. And that's where we're at. Like that's actually where the state of the art is. The state of you know, it is currently trying to figure out, you know, what is and isn't useful for making these predictions. And I don't know, maybe have me on in, uh, in a few years and I'll have more specific statements for you. Well, speaking of in, in a few years, well, personalized medicine does seem like uh, the natural evolution in, in general, too. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think is needed in order for the progress to be made. But also, you know, since this podcast is all about the future, uh, though we're t- we've talked quite a bit about the present, but I think it's because that's what's heading into the future. You know, where do you see all of this going into the more distant future, you know? 10, 20 years from now or further, if you want to take it further. Here, here, here's my dream world, right? My dream world is you feel like, let's say you, you, let's say you have depression. Let's say you're feeling really down and you're not really sure what to do, or you're having some sort of mental, mental health problem. Yeah. Let's say that you, you know, let's uh, just, hypothetically, <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> and you hop on to your computer and you fire up future version of GPT-3 and you have a chat with your future AI friend. And then from that, it compiles a bunch of information from your face and from your voice. 
compares that to some brain scans you might have had later had earlier before you got this program. And it says, Catherine, please put on your helmet. And you put on your helmet. And when you put on the helmet, it uploads a protocol based on your just conversation that makes you feel a lot better through local stimulation um, of the brain, either through some sort of improved version of uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation or some other technology that hasn't been developed yet. I love this uh, vision of the future. And I think it's plausible version of the future. Yep. Um, I, it doesn't appear to be the case, but are there any drawbacks? The only answer to that is look at Brave New World. You have to ask the question, is there a reason for suffering and how much ought we suffer? So mm. if I could remove, snap my fingers and remove all suffering from your life, should I? That's a fantastic philosophical question and a, a really valid one, I think. Uh, this is a question that I ask all my guests on this podcast, and that is, what are you most excited for when it comes to the future? And that could be anything. I don't know. Probably being a grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a unique answer so far. Everyone else probably gives you techie answers, right? No, they're, they're honestly, they're kind of all over the place. Some people. Yeah, I want, I want to be a really good grandpa. You want to be a really good grandpa? Yeah. <laughs> How, wh what does a good grandpa do? How can you customize the grandpa experience? <laughs> Well, well, see, by the time I'm a grandfather, with all, with all hope, I will not be very focused on my career. My career will kind of be in the rearview mirror. And for that, I get to focus on the development of my grandchild. And I may even be able to be more present than I will as a father when I have to be a major breadwinner for the household. Well, that's what your kids just really are going to love hearing. <laughs> well... You know, they can, they can complain, but I'm the one who has to pay for all their crud. <laughs> hey, that's fair. So, so, you know, they can, they can get, they can get a really cool, they can get a really cool grandpa for their kids. They, you know, they'll have to have a, uh, <laughs> a dad who's focused on a career, <laughs> unfortunately. That's how I see it now. I mean, I'm, I'm 23. What the heck do I know? Right. But that's true. I, this is what's this is this is what's in my mind right now. As I want uh, for the future, as I want to be a really really good grandfather. So I'm optimizing for having good stories and being broad enough that I can comment on a large swath of whatever it is my grandkid might be interested in. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, be present enough to be you know be capable of being present enough to kind of be involved in whatever it is that you know I, I can help with. I don't know th those sorts of things. R keeping healthy to the extent that I can actually be a grandfather. Those types of things. So, so it keeps me going. This well, vision of me in a rocking chair smoking a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good way to tie it back to precision medication in a way, being healthy. But the pipe kind of killed it. Yeah, well, I mean, we all have our vices. Fair enough. And I really enjoyed this conversation with you. Where can people find you if, if they want to get into the mind of Mason? Yeah, likewise. Well, um, I... 
I have a podcast of my own. It's called Solutions with Mason Hargrave. That's on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, um, all the places. Um, also, uh, I have a Twitter. That's at Mason Hargrave. I have an Instagram at metaphysical underscore ramblings, which <laughs> is really hard to find, but happens. I'm just very happy with the name of the Instagram. and I can't bring the heart to get rid of my, my high school self's poetic, uh, poetic <laughs> Instagram name. Uh, and I think those are the main platforms to get a hold of me. The other thing is I also have a Discord, um, the Solutions with Mason Hargrave Discord, and there you can find me like pretty often. Like if you wanted to, if you wanted to private message me and have a pretty good solid chance of actually being able to talk to me at some point in time when I'm on the server, which I'm on the server, you know, at least once a week in voice chat, if not more, um, that's a really good way for people to stalk, stalk me. So if you want to stalk me, you can find me on there and you can probably bump into me in the hallway, if you will, of, uh, of discord. So I love that. I love that people, you were actually inviting people pretty much to stalk you. What is your podcast about? Yeah, it's, it's about solutions. It's about the art of problem solving. So I talk about how to, I have people on to talk about how do you solve problems more generally? That's the, that's the whole, that's the whole question. Well, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me on. This is great. I'm glad to have gotten the, you know, to archive what it is that I think in the year, in the spring of 2021 about these things that I'll probably kick myself for in five years when I completely change my opinion on half of it.